right, we're going to get started this morning. Good to see all of you. Um, as you probably undoubtedly heard by now, last week's Sunday school was the best Sunday school I've ever taught in my life. Uh, you've all missed it. Um, so if you want to, and it wasn't recorded, so you can't actually hear it. Um, so too bad. Next time, just be here. Um, I'm kidding. It was not that fun. It was fine. Um, so last week we, we took a detour because there was basically no one here. We didn't talk about covenant theology. We talked about uh, what is love um, from 1 Corinthians 13. We talked about love is patient. Um, but So this morning we'll go back to covenant theology and we'll start talking about um, something important. But before we do that, let's pray and go before God and seek his blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for how you have uh, continually spoken to your people and spoken to us throughout all of history. Thank you, Lord, that we get to look back uh, at what you have done in the past and know that you are continuing in the future. Father, we praise you. And as we learn about your covenants today, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would seek and truly desire to know more about you, to know more about all that you have done. And help us, Lord, to trust you more and more pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the last time we talked about covenant theology, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about the covenant of redemption. Uh, can anyone summarize the covenant of redemption for me? I got it all day. Yeah. Exactly. It was agreement, an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before time began in eternity. What was the purpose of the covenant of redemption? What was the agreement? What did they agree to do? Did the Trinity all get together and say, we're going to go ski-balling on Saturday? For you kids, that's a game where you... Go to an arcade and you do a ski ball. Does anyone remember? Covenant of Redemption? Were Michelle? Are they going to redeem humanity? Yeah. Covenant of Redemption? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's in the name, Covenant of Redemption, right? There's redeeming going to happen. I mean, if you want just one word, salvation, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all colluded together, made a covenant together to save the elect. Um, so if you remember, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all have different roles to play in the covenant. Uh, the Father is the one who directs and ordains and instructs, and he's the one who sends the Son. Right? We looked at John where Jesus says, I don't come to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Right? And so we also see that Jesus, his role is to do it. He's the one who accomplishes. So the Father sends and decrees and elects. The Son goes and He accomplishes. He fulfills. He's the one who actually works out the redemption. Um, Does anyone remember what the Spirit does in the covenant of redemption? What does the Spirit do in salvation? Applies the work of the Son through regeneration. Exactly. Applies the work of the Son primarily through regeneration and then continues in believers' lives and the lives of the elect through sanctification. So the Spirit is very personally present in our salvation. Um, and that's all important, right, because we're Trinitarian. We emphasize the fact that all three members of the Trinity are present in salvation. It's not just what Jesus did. It's what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done and continue to do. Um, 
it just hopefully just increases our awe and thankfulness to God that he wanted to do this so bad. All three persons wanted to do this, and so made a covenant about it. So it shouldn't surprise us, right, that if God was making covenants before time existed, that he started making covenants right at creation, right? It's something that, you know, I like to say is that God loves covenants. He loves to make them. These are his jam. He wants to make covenants with his people. And so as soon as he creates, he continues to do that. He continues to make covenants. But not everyone agrees with that. There are actually strands of thought that say, well, no, covenant theology and covenants, you're just making a big deal, right? It's not that big of a thing, or just because you think it's there doesn't mean it's there, right? If you don't see the actual word covenant, it's not a covenant, um, and there's a couple of different categories of people that I've, I've connect, disconnected. One of them I call the relationshipers um, because they emphasize not covenant but relationship. Right? They say that, no, 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 don't talk about covenants. That's way too legal and impersonal and distant. That's cold. God doesn't work like that. God is personal and relatable and close and warm. Um, so why would you bring in categories in a covenant such as obligation and oath and sanctions and consequences and all these things and merit when you're talking about God, the God of love? Right? Those are big legal terms. So people like this will concede right, that there are covenants in Scripture, but they're not important. They're not a big deal. You just naturally have a relationship with God. You naturally have a relationship with the Lord simply by existing. Uh, covenant theology is suffocating. It suffocates relationships. But the main problem, right, is that if you just take that a next step, you don't sound very different from a pagan. Right? A pagan will say things like, you just have a natural relationship to divine, right, to God. People who believe that the world spirit exists or that all of the creation is God will say you have a natural relationship with God, that you're just naturally related to him. Ancient religions right, believe that you don't need to go outside of you know, your backyard to find God. You just naturally have a relationship with him. So covenant theology will push us to say that there is a natural connection right between us and God because we're created in God's image, but our relationship is bounded and, and structured by covenant theology. John. Uh, can we say that they're right to a certain extent? And that is that God is love. He is a God of personal relationships. But that broke. Mm -hmm. That broke when sin came. And that's when the first covenant began. God covenant telling us that there would be a son in the future that would crush the head of the serpent and that we had future hope beginning there in the I think you're, you're right in a couple ways. Um, yes, we do, they are right. Relationshipers are right in the sense that we, we do have a relationship with God. Sin mars it and breaks it. But there was a covenant before the fall. Covenant theology is not something that God implements as a response to sin. Covenant theology is something that, that this is how God relates to people. This is how he creates relationships with humans. Is It's primarily through covenant. It's not exclusively, but primarily the Lord uses covenants. 
Um, relationshipers will say, no, 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 no. God doesn't, that's not how God primarily relates to people. That's not how he primarily brings people into fellowship with him. Um, and, yes, there was a covenant before the fall. Um, and relationshipers will, I mean, they just have a misunderstanding of covenants. Right? They view it as something legal and drawn away and, and suffocating. But again, we talked about the marriage covenants two weeks ago. Marriage is not a suffocating, cold, legal agreement. Right? It, is a, it is a relationship that has been structured and per, good boundaries have been put in place. And everyone understands right, that this is what this is. This is a marriage. It's two people who love each other and have come together in relationship. And the covenant only strengthens that bond. Covenant only helps provide a, a, a place of peace and unity to foster and grow. Um, without it, right, you're, you, you don't have a marriage. Without it, you can you have no boundaries, and I think you see that in the world. Brett. By way of analogy, I would not like it if the government came and said, "You don't need the Bill of Rights; that's too legal. Let's just have love and trust us." Yeah. <laughs> so that that law protects me. Um, that is love. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like the Bill of Rights. Yeah, you, for to have a relationship, you have to have two living people, right? Mm-hmm. We're dead in our trespasses and sins without, you know, with Christ. Without Him, we're dead. So that can't be a relationship. If you're dead, you can't relate to God. Sure. All this stuff is natural, maybe feelings, but it's not the truth. Yeah. No, you're right. Um, the only thing I, I would say is that I think people who are dead in their sins are still in covenant with God. But it's it's of a different kind. And we'll, we'll start to unpack all of this. Um, so the second, so that's the first strand, right? Here's here's the people who say, no, covenant theology is whatever. Um, we have a natural relationship to God. There's a second strand um, that also sees covenants as as overblown, unbiblical, and flat out wrong. Uh, and this strand is, is dispensationalism. Um, dispensationalists will say that. Covenant theologians like us, right, failed to see that God clearly has two different purposes in history, right? He has one purpose for Israel and another purpose for the church. That the Lord has no mention, right? There's no mention of this covenant of works or covenant of grace. Biblically speaking, we, according to them, are completely wrong and unbiblical and we're just crazy. Um, the main structure for dispensationalists, what structures history and biblical revelation is God's dispensations, meaning the, the particular outworkings of God in different stages of history. So God works in different ways in each stage of history, is what dispensationalists will say. So the, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is like a hard line for them. Right, because that marks two different ways God is working in history. He worked in one way in the Old Testament and a different way in the New Testament. Those are big accusations to throw at covenant theology, right? That it's unbiblical, it's unbased, that it doesn't actually represent how God works in history. And they see a, a, a massive break between the Old and New Testament. A massive break between Israel and the church. Um, 
But I think covenant theology actually is what unifies all of Scripture and provides the basis to see all of Scripture through God's one plan. We talked about the covenant of redemption for a reason. Because that is what guides everything that God does in history. This one plan of salvation worked out in, throughout all of history. Now, in different periods of history, God would reveal a little bit more. Right? Things would become more clear, more specific as time would go on. But it was all present from the start. That God never hid anything, that salvation was never through a different means. But covenant theology is what actually gives us that structure to understand, here's what the Bible's saying, here's what God is doing, and what he will continue to do. Um, so I have a question for all of you. Because it, it will have to do right, with a relationship or natural relationship to God. Can we ever know God apart from covenant? Generally. How so? If you are speaking of the forensic aspect of the covenant, that's what we would call special revelation. The scripture speaks to all of mankind knowing God generally from the things that have been made. Mm-hmm. We can't know specifically his works of salvation, but we can know his power, his love. As Romans one, Romans one identifies, which leaves all mankind without an excuse, mm-hmm. knowing him generally that he is. Okay. So Charlie's saying yes in a in a generally general way we can know God apart from covenant. Uh, going off what he said a minute ago about how all people are in covenant to God, they're covenant keepers and covenant breakers, and you'll you say you get to that, but that means that in some way we are to know. So, wait, are you saying that we can know God apart from covenant or that we can't? We can. We can know him apart from covenant. Generally. Okay. Yeah, that God is. Okay. Any other thoughts? You can know about him. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. But that's not knowing him in a personal relationship. Okay. Okay. How else? Any other thoughts? Can we know God apart from covenant? Do you mean that? Apart from being in the covenant relationship with God, I think everybody, God's covenant that He makes with us naturally excludes people on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are not, you know, just like a marriage covenant or something else, I mean, it excludes everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think God does that too on purpose. So, in that sense, everybody is, as Charlie was saying, part of it in the sense that either God has brought you into the covenant or it's God, God has left you out of it. Okay. So, do you mean. No, no, no. You, did you have a, a question at the end? Okay. Brett, you had your hand up. Yeah, just reflecting on those passages, it also says that his wrath is revealed. Mm-hmm. And that we, when we punish evildoers, we are reflecting that law in, in our hearts so that those do seem to connect or, or betray that it's not just a general knowledge, but it's actually a covenantal knowledge that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Brett says there's covenantal knowledge. Dave? Um, in the biblical understanding of what to know is, is to love someone. So it seems to me that outside the covenant, we can't love God. I mean, if we struggle to love God appropriately you, you know, when we are in that covenant. But outside of the covenant, I don't, I don't think that you can love God or know God 
in that kind of way. Okay. So we can't know or love God outside of... Uh, Brittany? Uh, I'm, just, I'm struggling to parse this out because it seems like there's multiple covenants. And so which one are we talking about being outside of? I think that the boys were studying it in Genesis, and so... It seems to be a covenant there in creation where God gives these mandates. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of it is to glorify God, extend his dominion, and Mm -hmm. be image bearers. So it seems like nobody is outside of that particular covenant. Mm -hmm. Intrinsic to that covenant is is that, is that what it was? Can you know God? Yeah, yeah. Can, you, can, you, can someone ever know God apart from covenant? I think that's a great question, right? What covenant are we talking about? What do you mean by know? Yeah, definition. What, what, what do you mean by can? Can? Like a can of soup? <laughs> Caleb, do you have your... So let me start to, a lot of things have been said. I appreciate everyone who spoke. Um, let's start to pull some of these thrans, strands together and start tying a nice little bow. Um, Paul says in Romans 1, I think Gary brought up Romans 1, um, Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. All right, so let's pull some of these strands together. What covenant are we talking about in Romans 1? Are we talking about the covenant of grace that God has made with the elect? No. No. Covenant of creation. Yeah. It says, right, that there are things that have been revealed since creation. And these things that have been revealed produce, or are supposed to produce, a response in humanity. Because Paul says, they are without excuse. That implies that there are obligations that mankind is compelled and must fulfill by virtue of being created. And obligations, whenever you talk about obligations and consequences for not fulfilling them, you're talking about a covenant. Because you're talking about God making a relationship, establishing a relationship with mankind, saying, obey me, worship me, honor me as Lord. And here we have Paul saying, and they don't. They do the opposite. Right? They are unrighteous, they are ungodly, and thus, the covenantal consequences will follow. The wrath of God is revealed. Right? This, is, this is covenantal language. Paul is saying that all of humanity is in covenant with the Lord. From the, from the beginning of creation, God is revealing to people through the created things and compelling them, calling them right, to fulfill their end of the bargain to fulfill the stipulations of the covenant with the the saying that there's consequences for when you don't. That is covenantal language. 
So I think we need to step back and say, okay, so what is this covenant that Paul is talking about? Paul's talking about some sort of creational covenant with obligations and stipulations and consequences. We need to go back to Genesis and start finding out what is Paul talking about. So let's go back. Turn to Genesis. And we're going to open to Genesis 1 to begin. So we're going to begin reading in verse 26. So Genesis 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's a question. Is this a covenant? And if so, why? And if not, why not? John? I would say it's, uh, it contains some basic elements of a covenant. There's a mandate. Mm-hmm. And they're given... Power and authority to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. That's the basis of the covenant. Two very important elements of the covenant. You have an obligation, and you're given strength or ability, dominion, in this case. Sure. Yeah. Broadly speaking, right? Let's go back to the marriage covenant. <clears throat> Because that's just a great analogy. The, the relationship doesn't begin with the marriage covenant, but there's love there, and the covenant provides all the structures and boundaries for the marriage. God creates man in his own image. That establishes a relationship, and then he says, here are the structures and the boundaries for our relationship. Because you are created in my image, because you are mine, and now we will have this covenant, this covenantal relationship where, Paul, where God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Right? Here's the boundaries of, of your role in our covenantal relationship. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it and have dominion over it. Essentially, right, as, as image bearers, God is saying, here is your role in our covenant, is to take my dominion, my presence, and fill the earth with it. Right? And go and be, for, go and be extensions of me. Like, go and, 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 and bring my presence and my holiness and my dominion and my kingship to all the earth. To represent me. Right? To be little kings in my place. Um, so those are the duties that God gives to mankind. Those are covenantal obligations that God is giving to Adam and Eve by virtue of them being created. So you become part of this covenant because you bear the image of God. But we don't have all the details yet. Right, Genesis 1 starts to give us the, the, some of the boundaries, but we still need to find out, okay, so what happens if Adam and Eve fail? 
right? What happens if they don't fulfill this covenant? Um, Chapter 2. Right, yeah, just turn turn the page. Um, so now we're actually going to start narrowing down, and God's going to take right this this general structure of covenantal of covenant. He's going to narrow it down to a specific time and place for Adam and Eve, and He does that in two Genesis two fifteen through seventeen. Um, so here's Genesis two fifteen through seventeen. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now there's you know tons of things we could say about this passage. Um, it's very important. But clearly, right, the Lord is is in a sense taking the big picture, right, what man is supposed to do for all of the creation and saying, okay, do it on a small scale just in the garden. And there will be consequences if you fail. But we need to start asking questions, right? Because on the face of it, it doesn't give us everything. It doesn't seem to give us every detail. So let me ask you this this question. It's, it's clear, right, that if Adam fails, if they eat of the tree that they're not supposed to eat, they will they will die. Right? There's consequences for not fulfilling their end of the covenant. But what would happen if, if Adam and Eve obeyed? What do you think would happen if they didn't break the covenant? Okay. Because that wasn't ever going to happen. Okay, but for the sake of for the sake of Adam, or not for the sake of Adam, for the sake of trying to figure out what the Lord is doing, right? I don't think it's mere speculation to ask. So, what's the opposite side of the coin? Okay, heaven. We can be more specific. So, I saw Sean and then Charlie and then Brittany. I. No, <laughs> I did good this time. Uh, yeah, I think we could extrapolate from Revelation that he rewarded with the crown of life and never be able to sin after that. Yeah, I think you're right. If they receive death if they fail, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say they would receive life if they didn't fail. Right? If Adam disobeys, if they eat of the tree, right, they die. The flip side of that is if they don't eat of the tree, then they will live. And the implication that we can draw and that we actually see throughout the rest of Scripture is that the prize, right, the reward would be eternal life, eternal perfect life. Not simply, you know, okay, we're going to continue in this state of the garden forever because God has just said, fill the earth. Right? In this narrow sense, God is saying, here's, here's a test case. Right? Here's, here's a small... We're going to start here. We're starting the garden. And if you succeed, then we'll, we'll continue this to the whole earth. Uh, because God never intended them to stay simply in the garden. Right? His picture was the whole earth to be filled and subdued and to be dominioned. Sean? You see it in the Jesus, the second Adam. Um, Revelation says, to the one who overcomes... Jesus is the one who overcame 
So go back to the first step. If he overcame, he would then be declared the overcomer mm-hmm. and granted all those things. Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, Sean is saying that Jesus is the second Adam, so just great. Do you want to just come up and teach? And just... <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Um, can, I, can I ask a question? Of course. Uh, like, could you make a distinction between the life that they already have and the reward? Mm-hmm. Because death doesn't exist at this point. If they stay away from the tree, assuming like they would live perpetually in a relationship with God, God is already walking with them. They like He is fully revealing Himself to them, right? Um, and who knows how long that obedience would take to subdue the entire earth, which is wilderness at this point. Um, so it seems like at what point would it God say good job? And two, they already are in unadulterated life that isn't tainted by death. Adam's not going to die so long as they stay away from the tree, and so neither of his, you know, uh, his children and descendants and that sort of thing. So how is, what's the, like, this is just amusing. Like, yeah. the difference in the reward with what, Adam's already in this undefiled relationship with Yahweh, walking in the garden and doing all these things. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, right, Adam's already in a, a wonderful relationship with God, right? He's walking with God. He's in God's presence. Um, he is he is not tainted by death. They don't experience death. Um, however, Augustine puts it like this. Adam was able not to sin, but he wasn't complete. Right? Adam was capable of not sinning. After the fall, humans are only capable of sin. In eternity, we will not be able to sin. So Augustine has this really pithy Latin phrase that I will not try to say because I forget. Um, I I forget exactly how it goes. But it's very, it rhymes, it's beautiful, look it up. Um, Basically, Adam's not yet perfect and sinless. Like, he, he has not sinned yet, but he's still capable of sin. And the proof of that is that he does. Right, he sins. After fulfilling the, the covenant, the gift of eternal life guarantees that he will not be able to sin again. That that capability of sin is, is removed. He will be perfect and complete and never be able to sin. It's, it's not going to be possible. That's the reward. Right? Is that there's... He's not yet perfect and complete, but yet he's still... He's way better than we are. Right? Because he's capable of, of righteousness. He's capable of merit. And that's a really important term, merit. Um, because one of the critiques of talking about this covenant is that, well, this seems like a really unfair covenant, right? Adam doesn't eat a tree and he gets eternal life. Like, what kind of reward? Like, how could he possibly do that? How could God do that? doesn't seem fair. Or others will say, well, humans, human beings can never actually earn something from God. Because we're so less than God, right? God is, is not just greater, he's different. How could we earn something? How could Adam earn something? So I'm going to ask you that, guys that question. Um, is, this, is this just a bunch of theological malarkey? Like, does that resonate with you? Does it seem like God is just being arbitrary? Can human beings merit something? Can they... Earn something from God, Sean. If God sets the terms. Can you, 
took the terms and he earned it. So yes, Adam could have merited. Okay. Michelle? I I was thinking all that they've been given, they didn't earn that. They've already been given grace and the garden and life. So they haven't they haven't earned that and they just mm-hmm. get to keep it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's true, right? It says that God blessed them, and then he says, be fruitful and multiply, back in Genesis 1. Yeah, there is is interesting, because it's like, James grows up, and he's like, yeah, I earned to be in this family. It's like, you actually didn't do anything. Your mother and I, you know, <laughs> yeah. we made you, we gave you everything. You know, like, so the covenant creation is really interesting with regard to this, the discussion of merit. I agree with Sean that if God sets the terms... It says, if you do this, then that, then in a covenantal framework, in a sense, there is something to be earned. But so much of what Adam is doing is still dependent upon the Lord's governance. Adam isn't moving and having his being apart from Yahweh, right? There is something unique there. The Lord is still upholding Adam in his obedience. And so it's, it's just, it's, I think it's interesting and kind of tricky to, to kind of... It is. But there's a really important reason why we need to get it right. Because how we view the covenant of works will naturally extend to how we view Christ's work on the cross. And actually his whole life of obedience. Because Sean already talked about right, Jesus being the second Adam. Let's talk about the first Adam. What would happen to all of Adam's descendants if he either obeyed or disobeyed? Sean? They'd be blessed or cursed. Right. For the sanction. If Adam couldn't merit, neither could Christ. Right. So the point is that with Adam goes all of humanity. If Adam obeys, all of humanity is blessed with eternal life. If Adam disobeyed, all of humanity is cursed with death. Like there's consequences for all of humanity based upon how he acts. And if and because the Lord says this is on you to keep. It is on Adam's shoulders to either obey or disobey. And that's important. So I think it's it's really tempting to start to bring into this covenant the idea of grace. I'm not talking about creation. I'm not talking about God imbuing Adam and Eve with, with the image of God or blessing them by putting them in the garden and bringing them into a relationship with him. I'm talking about the terms of this covenant. The terms of this covenant are obey and live, disobey and die. God has given Adam the tools he needs. God has already given Adam everything he needs in order to obey. Like, there's nothing lacking. This is where the Roman Catholics will go wrong. They'll say that Adam did not have it in in himself the tools necessary to obey. That God had to give Adam grace... In order for him to, for it to even be possible for Adam to obey. But Sean has just said, right, he pointed out that God sets the terms of the covenant. That God has actually given Adam everything he needs and set the terms and said, You have everything you need in order to fulfill this covenant. Do it and live, disobey and die. Charlie? So, yes, I think Sean brings up a great point that the capacity needs to be in there in order for Christ to take on flesh to take on the capacity in that flesh in order to obey the Father. So I think there's 
there's a balance here where we say Adam was capable of obeying, but he could not because of the covenant of redemption. If that makes sense. He was ordained to not. We can never say Adam could have because of that usurps the covenant of redemption which was made before Adam. Not, not necessarily. Unless Adam is acting outside of God's will in some capacity. That you're, you're Adam is acting fully within the covenant of redemption. Even though he was made able to do this, he could not do it because the covenant of redemption which was made before him. So you're, you're, you're touching on providence and will. right? You're talking about the will of God versus people acting as agents. Providence happens according to God's covenant. As you just said right. here, that the covenant of redemption orders history, orders salvation history. Right. Adam's a part of salvation history. So Adam had the capacity to obey, but he could not according to the covenant. So... I think you're just you might be just nitpicking on on language that seems to encroach on God's will and plan, which I don't think it does. Right? I think it is perfectly in line to say Adam could have obeyed, but by God's providence he didn't. He he could have, in the sense of capability, willingness, and and everything from a human level. I agree with you. Not without that nuance, though. Adam could have if God had willed it, but God did not will it. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, so, yeah, saying that he has the capacity, sure. Yeah, I just think, it's, to say that he could have, I mean, it's... it's, it's just, you're, you're, you're trying to nuance between the different positions here. Saying Adam could have obeyed pricks the ears of dispensationalists, of people who are privy to the Reformed tradition. So, aha, he could have obeyed. So, like, just trying to clarify that there's that nuance there, that you can't talk about his capacity um, apart from the strictures of the covenant that is order in history. Okay, sure. Yeah, fair point. He, he could have obeyed if God had willed it, but he, God willed that he would fall, right? Because God had a purpose already in place before even creation. My whole point is to say that, contrary to Roman Catholics, the possibility from a human perspective existed. Like, there's nothing lacking in Adam himself. That's what I'm contrasting with. With those who would say that there was something lacking in Adam that God would have, would have had to fill in order for Adam to obey. I'm saying there's nothing lacking in Adam for him to have been able to obey. That's, that's the distinction I'm trying to make. Not, not from a, well, you know, he could have because God just kind of rolls with whatever we do. <clears throat> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the Lord's plan was was set, yes, but human-wise, contrary to Roman Catholics, there's nothing lacking, lacking in Adam. There's no grace in this covenant. That's the point I'm trying to push. This is a covenant of works. Adam obeys, and he, and he earns righteousness for himself. Because that's the terms. And that's why people say, well, no, you can't earn righteousness, humanly speaking. Well, according to this covenant, yeah, Adam would have earned eternal life. And that's why it's important to make that distinction, because if Adam can earn eternal life, Jesus can earn eternal life. If Adam can't earn eternal life without grace, Jesus can't earn eternal life without grace. That's, that's where I'm trying to, to cut, right, through the cheese, I don't know. Um, to make that distinction, because we're talking about something that is foundational for the rest of Scripture. 
Um, and that's why I think people like dispensationalists and relationshipers will push back at this and say, well, no. No, you can't earn eternal life. Not anymore. <laughs> You're right. We're broken. We're sinful. That's why Romans says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That the wrath of God is revealed. Just a comment that I think one of the reasons that we we want to bring grace into the covenant works is because we 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 don't want to believe that Adam that there was something inherent in Adam that could that because of that he could earn his salvation, so to speak. Which of course is not true. He can't. There, I mean, there is nothing inherent in Adam that makes him worthy of. Salvation. It's the term that Psalm said. God says the term, if you do this, you will live, as you, as you said, clearly. Um, but we're afraid of that because we've got this idea of Jesus fulfills it, as you said, um, and Jesus is God. And we, 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 it seems to me, are hesitant to believe that if we, if we do the same thing, then that kind of, we're talking about ourselves as gods, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. That's not the case. It does nothing to do with our inherent worth. Obviously, we can't earn it in the sense that we are worthy of it. Um, we could only earn it in the sense that it, these were the rules, and if we had followed them, we could have we could have done that, but we didn't. But I think that's just kind of why we are so hesitant to think that way. Yeah. And for good reason. Yeah. I. It's. When we actually come face to face with God's word, it should be hard in a sense because. It's not going to grate well with our nature and what we want God's word to say. Um, doesn't mean it's always hard, but I think that's why we're trying to push so hard to say, well, what, is, what is the Lord saying? Disobey and die. Means obey and live. Means here's the covenant, here's the terms. Adam would have lived if he had obeyed. He didn't, he died, therefore all of humanity dies. We are lost. And we don't want to admit that. We don't want to say that. We don't want to say, well, we're, we are doomed unless God intervenes. But that's exactly what we need to say. We're, we're out of time. Um, I, want to, I would love to get to everybody, but we're not done with the covenant of works. Um, we'll pick up next week um, and start to unpack some more stuff. Um, but why don't we pray, and then we'll close for today. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together. Uh, we thank you that you are the one who ordains history and not us. Because if it were our plan, it would probably look really different and probably be really bad. Uh, but thank you, God, that you're in charge. Help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to your word, to always be seeking to trust you, to reform what we think uh, to you and your word, not just to traditions of man. Guide us, Lord. Impress us with the magnitude of your mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.